complex history is, is in every single community and discovering how it relates to individuals, either through your own family or the community you're living in, is a way to really have that sense of discovery that we offer people at Montpelier at their own home. Welcome to Learning Unboxed, a conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. This is Annalise Corbin, Chief Goddess of the Past Foundation and your host. We hear frequently that the global education system is broken. In fact, we spend billions of dollars trying to fix something that's actually not broken at all, but rather irrelevant. It's obsolete. A hundred years ago, it functioned fine. So let's talk about how we reimagine, rethink, and redesign our educational system. So in today's episode of Learning Unbox, we have a special treat because we are going to be talking about exploring the legacy of race through archaeology as a teaching tool with one of my longtime um, colleagues, Matthew Reeves. Matthew, or Matt, as we all know him, is the director of archaeology at James Madison's Mount Pillar in Orange, Virginia. So Matt, welcome to the program. Thank you, Annalise. It's so wonderful to be here. So, you know, uh, we often go back to um, my own roots, as uh, many of our listeners know on this program. Um, they, they, they know that archaeology and um, that the, the study and the science associated with the work that we do is very, very near and dear. And is certainly part of the origin story with past foundation, um, anthropology and archaeology. And so it's always fun when I get to talk to a colleague about the really cool things that they're doing and how that impacts the way that we think about teaching, learning, and the future of the world. And so I'm super excited to have you today. But for our listeners who come to us from all over the world, set the stage just a little bit for us, Matt, about what the heck is James Madison's Mount Pillar for folks who might not be familiar with it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, um, Mount Pillar is not recognized by everybody. When I first started here 20 years ago, I said I was working at Mount Pillar. All my friends from graduate school in Syracuse were, was, were excited because they thought I was heading to Montpelier, Vermont. But no, this is uh, Montpelier, which is the, uh, the plantation home of, the, of James Madison, fourth president of the United States. And there were three generations of Madisons that owned Montpelier and ran it as a plantation. Uh, they were slave owners for, for their family uh, here at Montpelier for uh, around 130 years. And there were over 400 uh, Americans who were enslaved here. And so one of the, and where we're located is in central Virginia. So we're right in between Charlottesville, where University of Virginia is, and just the outer edges of the Washington, D.C., the, the, uh, um, the suburbs there. And so we're, we're, we're about an hour to a 45-minute drive if, you know, between any of the major, uh, you know, um, urban areas in, in, in this part of Virginia. But what we're about at Montpelier is we're, we're restoring the, the plantation home and landscape here at Montpelier back to its 1820s appearance. This is the time period where uh, James and Dolly Madison had retired from their political role mm-hmm. in Washington, D.C., and uh, what we are doing at Montpelier is restoring not just the, the house that, that the Madisons lived in, but all uh, of the, 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 uh, um, the, the uh, quarters for enslaved individuals, the working areas, bringing this place back to how it would have been recognized by the community that lived and worked here. 
And one of the important things that we talk about is, you know, the legacy of Madison as mm-hmm. the father of the Constitution, you know, as, as he's colloquially right. known. Right. Um, he was the, you know, be- best known for beyond just being the fourth president of the United States uh, as being author of uh, one of the primary authors of the Federalist Papers, mm-hmm. of devising the, the being the architect of the Constitution, design, you know, writing the Virginia plan that served as the basis that brought, you know, these 13 disparate states, what used to be colonies together under a constitutional democracy. And what we're interested in Montpelier is that legacy of, in, in many ways, our focus is on the legacy of citizenship, because at Montpelier, at any one time, you know, from the 1790s into the 1820s, before the enslaved Americans began to be sold by the Madisons, because they were property that were owned by the Madison family, that's sort of legally they were defined in the Constitution, mm-hmm. is that uh, 95 to 96% of the people living at Montpelier were not recognized as citizens. Right. They were not, they were not legally, they were legally property. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, what the Constitution protects is the economy of the United States because without you know a, a sound economy there is no sound polit- polit- uh, political structure and of course at that time the uh, what was you know ninety five percent of the gross domestic product of the United States was off the backs of enslaved Americans Black Americans mm-hmm. people of African descent and not only the products of labor they produced. But actually, the the value of their bodies of being able to be sold as a commodity, and this became really central to not only the economy of the United States, but also Montpelier after eighteen oh eight, the end of the transatlantic slave trade, where and then the expansion of the cotton cotton industry. So these are all stories that we tell through the lens of James Madison's home, and when James Madison was retired here, he retired here as a Madison family member as a slave owner, that's how, you know, in many ways he, he wanted to be remembered. And it's, uh, you know, this can be seen through how he presents himself uh, to visitors and even in it, it, even the spot he was buried in an unmarked grave, just like the other, other uh, Madison family members. So it's a complex story and we've got all sorts of amazing partners we've engaged. The, the descendant community, which is the Montpelier Descendant Committee today, they're organized as our own 5013C uh, uh, status organization, public. And over the past uh, 15 years, we've, uh, the archaeology department has made its mission to really make archaeology not just how we discover these sites, because all of them. Right. Are, all of them are gone. They're, mm-hmm. they're, they're, there's not even documentary records for them because of the destruction of plantation papers in the 1850s here at Montpelier. How we go about finding these has been a central pro- part of the process of telling this story. And it's allowed us to really tell what, you know, what it's termed as hard history, you know, of the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a very uh, uh, um, a story with a lot of different angles in a way that becomes much more approachable by many, many different groups of people. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's a really it's a it's a tough story to tell, right? In many ways. Um, you know, separate of the politics of the time or the politics of the day, the reality mm-hmm. of it is that this this is a very complex human story, 
right? Mm-hmm. Um, and those those are the pieces that um, they're they're both gratifying as an archaeologist to to find and have the opportunity to tell to talk about all these voices that we don't necessarily hear hear anymore, right? Um, or mm-hmm. at the, or at the moment, you know that we that we struggle with, but. But Matt, I would imagine just to sort of continue to set the context for the listeners that that the the complexity of this um, and the work that you're doing, right? Um, and mm-hmm. the, the purpose of Mount Pillar is is to be able to ensure that we don't forget very key components of our past tied back to part of the historical narrative that, quite frankly, we change the telling of it through time. Let's talk about that a little bit yeah, um, yeah. because you know obviously you know a, there's a lot of, of of conversation currently in the media um <laughs> has been going ongoing for for generations it's just that, that as we know the 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 conversation changes over time um as mm-hmm. as it should and it continues to progress um but certainly within the world of the k-12 um ecosystem there's a lot of conversation right now tied to something called critical race theory and as an archaeologist and an anthropologist and certainly someplace steeped in the work that you're doing, um, help help our listeners who are struggling to understand what is that really, right? Mm-hmm. Not what the version they're getting for social media or, or even, even the political version, but but from a practical standpoint from the work that you're doing, how, how do you explain to somebody what critical race theory is? And then we'll circle back around at the end of that and talk about then how do you translate that into the work that you're doing at Mount Hillier? Yeah, that, that's... Uh, um... We, complex been, question. I know <laughs> it's, it's part of your, it's really a, a critical part of what the, the story that we tell. And it, um, uh, we, for the past five years have had a major focus on, uh, on critical race theory, not, not termed as such, right. but termed from the standpoint of wanting to tell the complete story of Montpelier mm-hmm. in terms of, and this is what the descendant community has asked us to do in the partnerships we have with them, is basically, you know, tell all the history that happened at Montpelier. Mm-hmm. Don't leave anything out. Don't, you know, don't uh, villainize Madison. Don't put him on a pedestal. Mm-hmm. Don't treat him like a god. Treat, you know, treat the history as we're finding it from the archaeological record, from the documents and give everybody a voice. And this is something that I think it's what, what's been really um, uh, gratifying over the past five years is seeing how approaching this through the archeological record gives, is we're able to meet people where they're at. Uh, right. The past, right. you know, um, the, as you can imagine, when we're doing excavation on sites and surveying the 2,650 acres that are Montpelier, uh, time and time again, the vast majority of the sites that we find, you know, weren't occupied and worked at by James or Dolly Madison. Right. <laughs> they yeah. were worked at yeah. and lived in by the enslaved community mm-hmm. of Montpelier. And so I would dare say that 99.9% of the artifacts that we find in the ground and the sites that we uncovered, the people that built the sites, the, pe- the last person to touch those artifacts were members of the enslaved community. Right. And in order to understand what Montpelier is and what the home of James Madison is, there, I mean, the sheer volume of evidence that is directed towards, you know, the contributions that the enslaved community made and there's the sites they built, it is a focus on slavery at Montpelier and mm-hmm. of the enslaved community. And so 
just from the, if you were looking just the physical evidence alone and the sites we're uncovering, it, it demands that their stories be told because unless we're just going to find these artifacts and then put them back on the ground, let's say all the, the, the board decided one day, the only artifacts and the only sites we're going to interpret were ones that were exclusively lived in and touched by James or Dolly Madison. We would not be able to analyze or excavate a single artifact at Montpelier. Right. Except for maybe right. there's a thimble we found <laughs> in the main house yard that was silver. And there's a chance that could have been dropped by one of the Madison family members. That's about it. Yeah. You know, all yeah. the all the Chinese export China, the 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 Sev porcelain we found, while it was purchased by the Madisons, the, the individuals who were cleaning up those broken items or washing those plates, the last person to touch them were members of the enslaved community. So that's where what we need, need to build a context for is these sites that we're finding as historical archaeologists. Mm-hmm. And what it's really come to have us understand is that this reflects not just on the lives of the enslaved, but also, you know, if you want to come here and learn about James Madison, people want to understand how he lived in his own home. Right. The only way to do that and to do it authentically is to, you know, people want to, you know, see the, the, those those figurative pieces of the true cross, you know, mm-hmm. Cherry sat on and the plate he ate off of. All of these are integrally tied with the institution of slavery. Correct. And when you, if you looked at, you know, you looked at him, you know, just didn't even begin to get into the politics, but get into who he was. I mean, he survived based on the protection of his ability to own property. And, and that's something you hear about in the Constitution, you know, uh, the, the protection of personal property, the right, right to personal right. property. Back in the day, that had nothing to do with land that you owned. I mean, the, the right to own land, I mean, that was established in the 17th century with grants from the, uh, from the, the, the crown, of, you know, from England. Um, but personal property in the 18, when you're getting into the 1790s and the 18 teens, all this is wrapped up yep. with people owning people right. and the disputes that were arising from that. And, you know, nowhere is this more clear than, you know, in, in looking at the history of Montpelier and you know, the, the physical, the physicality of what we do with archaeology. And that's what's made really uh, the, the focus on bringing the, uh, the black spaces, those living areas, those working areas back to Montpelier you know, a central feature of what our work is. And it, you know, it, there's, um, it, it, and and it's, what's really, what's really exciting about it is when you present this to the public, you know, and in an average day, giving a tour, you know, over the past year or two years, you know, you'll have 15 people on a tour and they've got as divergent political and socioeconomic perspectives as you could get. But at the end of the tour, they they want they 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 come here wanting to know about James Madison, and what they end end up leaving with is an understanding of the importance of the whole community that was that was at Montpelier, mm-hmm. and it really you know it it goes to show that you know as as people we're interested in learning about people, and when you put it put it in people in terms of people's everyday lives, mm-hmm. there's a way that people can connect, and it's a way to you know, find that archaeology we found is this amazing way to um, meet 
meet visitors, meet participants in public archaeology programs, whether they're a metal detectorist or a descendant or just somebody that's always been interested in archaeology or a student that wants to go into archaeology, meet them where they're at. Right. And so having conversations has been a huge part where, you know, we, we it's not just about, you know, uh, you know, what we could do is just like what I'm doing right now is just like talking right. to people, but it's a- asking who they are right. and where, 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 what they think, what they think they're going to learn about when they visit Madison's home and getting, understanding what their interests are. And then, you know, all of a sudden, you know, establishing that common ground we can explore this together. And what's amazing, Annalise, is that some of the best questions that we've come up with about the archaeology mm-hmm. hasn't been from, you know, my my training in graduate school as a PhD student. It's come from listening yeah. to the public, yeah. to participants, to visitors. I mean, people are invested in their history. It's just, you know, uh, having them understand that, you know, what they're interested in is important. And it's what it's, it's a starting point to begin these conversations. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a really, really critically important starting point. And I think a couple of things that, you know, I'd like to highlight about what you were just talking about, you know, so, so one of those is recognizing that the work that's happening at Mount Pillar and, and uh, many of our colleagues around the country and other parts of the world that are, are, are working on sites that have very complex and interwoven mm-hmm. histories, right, is the fact that a lot of the work that we're trying to do within that field is to, to provide a more inclusive understanding. Right. And to be super, super mindful, right, about, um, you know, all the, all of the components, right, that actually go into a site. Because historically, as you and I well know, because it's been going on in our field for a very, very long time, is oftentimes archaeology has been used as a tool um, to be able to tell a single side of a story. And yet we know that that is not the purpose of archaeology, nor is it a good use of the work that, that yeah. we do. And so I would also assume, Matt, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that, you know, over the last few years, um, that the types and variety of questions that the visitors to Mount Pillar are coming to are changing, right? And mm. I would assume that there's, you know, lots of impacts because of that, because of their own personal experiences, um, experiences that they have seen through through media, whether it be social media or or or, or, or whatnot, um, the influence mm. of Black Lives Matter, um, you know, and these 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 are issues that have been going on for for a period of time, but, you know, um, become right in our face because, quite frankly, of the change that's happened in the way media and media works, right? And this can have mm-hmm. negative impacts, as we all know, but it can also have extremely positive impacts. And so my hope would be that as your visitors come, that you're getting a different type of conversation. And then, but what do you do with that? You know, as an archaeologist, back to, to my question earlier around mm-hmm. helping schools understand what is critical race theory and what is it not, right? And and how can yeah. schools utilize work that's happening in places like Mount Hillier um, as a mechanism to do a better job of providing a comprehensive story of who we are? Yeah, I would, in uh, your, in your um question about the changes that happened over the past, you know, five to, you know, mainly five years. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, what, what's coincided with the last five years of an awareness uh, in amongst the public of 
these broader questions that need to be asked. And, you know, what in the whatever reaction people have, they're recognizing that these issues can't be ignored any any longer, even if they want to ignore them themselves and they want to come to a place like Montpelier and not hear about something as painful as slavery because they think it's being twisted. Mm -hmm. What we've been doing during the same time period, which has been really helpful in this process, is making the lives of enslaved Americans who are living at Montpelier more visible through the reconstruction of their home sites, the places where they work. So when you, when you drive up to Montpelier today, you just don't see the main house there up on the hill. You see the, the, the buildings that were, where enslaved domestics were living, the, um, the kitchen, the smokehouses. And when you go and park at the visitor center, what you see out in the field is not just a rolling you call it countryside. I mean, you see that, right. but out in that field, there are these log structures that people automatically recognize. You know, they don't need to be prompted. Mm-hmm. They ask, you know, are those where the slaves live? Yeah. And you're like, exactly. Yeah. So it, it's um, if the if the landscape was empty of those visible visible clues and those visible signs that there is a there is a community here. Uh, that was beyond just the Madisons, because a lot of people when they when they arrive at Montpelier, they don't think about Madison as a slave owner. They're thinking they're visiting a presidential right, home site, right. kind of like visiting a president presidential library. Right, I mean, it's, right, it's kind right. of the model for it. Mm-hmm. But once they arrive, they realize, oh, you know, before they even talk to a single Montpelier employee, staff member or guide or archaeologist, they're seeing visible clues that, like you're saying, this story is a lot more complex. Yeah. And they're making that realization on their own. So it, um, I think that the context is everything. And it really goes to, you know, I, I would think that, you know, a lesson that we've learned from Montpelier is allowing the discovery process to take place in people's minds mm-hmm. on, their, on their own in some ways. So have some lead up to this so that, in, in you know, instead of just, hitting them cold with some of this information that, you know, all of a sudden there's a shock. They're beginning to discover it on their own. You know, by the time someone talks to a guide at Montpelier or they come out to the archaeology site, even if they haven't done a tour yet, Mm -hmm. they understand they're at a plantation. Right. And they're prepared to, you know, whether it's the distance from getting out of the car, Mm -hmm. you know, from taking that picture of the front of the house with with the slave quarters right beside the main house, or they get out of the car and they see a sign that's like, oh, plantation life at Montpelier. Mm-hmm. It's they're 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 coming to that on their own. So I, I don't know, you know, in terms of lessons that could be applied to, to schools, is you know, people are curious mm-hmm. and everybody has an intellectual curiosity about what's in their environment. And um, you know, leading them. Giving people, giving people uh, the perception, whether it's real or not, that we're all moving in the same trajectory. I mean, this is where you know we we've worked with the uh, the sites of con- consciousness uh, and tr- teaching hard history mm-hmm. um, about how to approach this through a four phase approach with with visitors. You know, asking hard questions yep. and getting people to yep. have discussions about this and. Uh, what, what's critical in, in this, in the approach is, is to understand where people are coming from and help them to have this discovery process be part of their experience, part of what they're 
they meet where where they're coming from and what they're expecting to have out of the situation meet how your approach is to talking about critical race theory yeah. in this case. Yeah. And so, you know, and the one way that, you know, archaeology is this incredible venue to do this is everybody likes, is interested in what you find at an archaeologist mm-hmm. site, mm-hmm. what those artifacts are. Yep. And when you begin to, add, you know, step people through that, you know, you're, um, you're at a, you're at this work area, like the site we're digging at right now, and we're finding slag, we're finding clipped iron. It's a blacksmith shop. Who do you think was working here? Right. You know, instead of saying, you know, Madison enslaved people here right. and it was wrong, it, we'll lead up to that. Yeah, we'll get there eventually with us. We'll so with, eventually. with the experience there, right? Yeah, absolutely. Is who would be who would have been working? Not not what who are the slaves here? Who is working here? Mm-hmm. And in listening. And this is really what we've gained from working with the descendant community. They've said, you know, the descendant community have said, you've got to, you got to listen mm-hmm. to people. Mm-hmm. You have to, you know, um, answer their questions honestly. And if you don't know something, say you don't know. Right. You know, this is, you know, part of what anybody wants in an honest relationship. And it and it's brokering a relationship where you see uh who you're talking with as a valuable partner. And this has been the case is whether we're, we're working with field school students, we're working with people that have, you know, retirees who are coming out to Montpelier for a week to spend the week with us and dig with us, whether we're working with metalodectorists who archaeologists have had traditionally are not a great relationship yep, with, yep. is once you meet people where they're at and treat them as equal partners and not, uh, you know, not thinking I've got to cram all this information in my head, which is tempting to do. And I do all the time. Mm-hmm. I've got to cram all the information from my head into their head. You know, it, it makes for this relationship that's very different. So I don't know if that gets at what yeah. you're, you're asking. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that, you know, my purpose here was, was to just, just think about a couple of different pieces. So the first one is that, you know, the work that we're doing, right, it lends itself to facilitating those really mm-hmm. hard conversations because there's so much yeah. value in learning that can happen in those uncomfortable spaces. Because mm-hmm. the reality of it is, for many people, the, the what, what's going on at Mount Pillar, the story that you're telling, the work that's happening, the history, the real life that happened there, because it's mm-hmm. absolutely real, right? And that's part of it, right? It can be incredibly uncomfortable to lots of folks yeah. from very mm-hmm. different perspectives, right? And and I think that um, what part I, I like about the approach that, that you and your team have been engaging in is the fact that you're, you're, you're living in that moment with the guests that come, right? Because yeah, the flip side absolutely. of it is that from the K-12 perspective, and certainly the work that we do at PAST is trying to help schools transition from, I need to be told a mm-hmm. whole set of facts, mm-hmm. right? Whether we're talking about math mm-hmm. or we're talking about history or we're, we're, we're talking about physics, chemistry, it makes no difference, right? That, that we move away from just a set of facts 
that mm-hmm. are taken at face value as fact. And instead, we move to a space where we're constantly asking questions of the information being provided to us, right? And that through that, we will have, quite frankly, a, a, a better educated citizenry, right? Because we're able to process information, make our own decisions, our own interpretations, right, wrong, political, not political, doesn't matter, but we have the opportunity to own them, right? You're speaking Madisonian talk, which I'm getting chills when you're talking, (laughs) because this is exactly how Madison approached the design of the Constitution. Mm -hmm. He, you know, he was, he he was literally schooled by Presbyterians. He was raised Mm -hmm. as an Anglican, schooled in Presbyterian thought, which is the Scottish Enlightenment. And this, you know, taking, uh, using critical thought to not just accept what facts are, but understand what is behind them, Mm -hmm. is what he used to, you know, really dissect the, um, you know, in his, uh, um, I believe it's entitled Notes on Confederacies, where he's looking at these Confederate forms of government from ancient, from the ancient world Mm -hmm. and understanding what went wrong with them. He wasn't looking for what went right. He was looking for what went wrong and then learning from that to see how to create a constitutional democracy, what went into the U.S. Constitution. Mm -hmm. This same sort of critical thought, I mean, if he was alive today, he would have culture shock, obviously, about Mm -hmm. where we are today as a country. But I think he would deeply, deeply, deeply appreciate the kind of critical thought and process we're applying to his his own past and his history to understand where we are today, to understand why, you know, why slavery was a central part of the the protection of slavery as an economic institution was a central part of what went into everything from the Second Amendment with the right to bear arms, but allow for militias to be created. The, um, the end of the transatlantic slave trade ending in 1808 as a concession, the three-fifths compromise, the um, the clause on fugitive slaves. You know, all this was based on the economy of slavery, and it led to these these this this uh, this set of social classes in America that are based on race mm-hmm. that today still haunt us, yep. that still we have not dealt with. Right. And that is exactly what critical race yep. theory is. If, you know, in looking at it, and you can look at it, everything is political, mm-hmm. but make, to make it more critical analysis. Right. And I think, you know, and this is what I tell visitors, when what we tell visitors when they visit Montpelier is, you know, we want to honor the, the, the precepts of what Madison did as legacy. And so critical to that is having a critical understanding of who he was as a person. Mm-hmm. And this is something that matches in our work with the descendant community, the Montpelier Descendant Committee, they've asked us to do as well. And so this, this what you were just talking about, it, it's Madisonian thinking. Mm-hmm. It's what led to the creation of a document that still is at, at its basis, we rely on for our form of constitutional government today mm-hmm. The amendment system that looks critically about where we are as a country and allows change to happen. I mean, it's all right there. Right. 
And that's the key, right? And I think that that's the thing that lots of schools struggle with when this topic comes up in their communities. And I guess that was my whole point for asking this question. And I appreciate so very, very much the the being able to use Mount Pillar and the work that's happening at Mount Pillar as a context component, if you will, for others to grab a hold of. And I hope that they will, right? Because at the end of the day, um, what we are talking about with 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 many 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 aspects of this conversation are about grabbing a hold of what was giving mm-hmm. it the context of the moment and also helping everybody to understand that not only do things change over time that's that's a simplification of everything but more importantly right but that there is there's a critical opportunity to delve into to understand and to dissect and to ultimately then use that to inform the way you move forward if at the end of the day you know we are the architects of the world in which we want to live in we mm-hmm. cannot get there we cannot get there if we don't understand and critically think about and pull apart the sort of journey um along the way and so that's one of the pieces that that, that I I truly love about this and I hope that that we can get you know schools in our communities to embrace the notion that even our 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 our, our littles um you know mm-hmm. our, the from the littlest learners to the oldest learners uh late in life right that if we can ensure that by providing a robust collection of information that others will get there right and that we honor the process of discovery and curiosity um you know those are some of the hallmarks quite frankly of what our country was founded on in addition to all of the other ins and outs pieces that come along so with that one of the things i always like to sort of wrap this program is thinking about folks that are sitting out in the world they're listening to all of this they're like oh my gosh you know how can i take what i just heard matt talking about and the work that's happening at Mount and what's going on in my own communities today and sort of really sort of roll them together. And so my, my question for you here is that, um, you know, Mount Pillar does a really great job. You have volunteers come in, you do a lot of training programs, you're working really, really hard to sort of change the dynamic of historical archaeology. Mm-hmm. Um, recognizing that it has, at least in, in, in this part of the world, um, historically been a very white field, right? Um, and, you know, really working to to incorporate and bring more people of color and diversity of thinking and thought and experience into our field. And that's part of the work that you're doing. How does that then translate into somebody's local community that doesn't have access to Mount Pillar? How, how does an individual person um, out there take what they heard today and say, I'm going to roll this into my experience in my classroom, or I'm going to roll this into my experience into my own community? What does that look like? Yeah, that, I mean, uh, one, this isn't available for everybody, but you know, through our public programs, people people can. We have we have teacher programs, yep. we have student programs that people can participate in, and we we provide um, scholarships that allow for. Uh, we, we have a focus on African American scholarships mm-hmm. to have uh, especially students come and learn about archaeology and learn about the field to to um, to bring not just a different perspective to what we do, but also to share. You know what this career tra- trajectory could be like. I, I'd say you know the what we're doing at Montpelier in terms of the archaeology of these spaces that's everywhere. Mm-hmm. And you know in terms of when visitors come, participants come on programs and they're from Oklahoma or they're from Illinois and they want to continue what they're doing. The process of discovering history and getting a, a new perspective on history that can be provided by archaeology. 
I always encourage them to reach out to their, we encourage them to reach out to their historical society. We'll give them contacts with colleagues that we know in the field to um, where they can, they can get involved in that process. And the, you know, also we, we, we have a, with COVID, we've been, we've been doing more of a digital component with this with volunteers that, that are crowdsourcing some of this data, but I, you know, this history, you know, the complex history is, is in every single community yep. and discovering how it relates to individuals, either through your own family or the community you're living in, is a way to really have that sense of discovery that we offer people at Montpelier at their own home, their own locality. And that just, just as this history is important to figuring out what happened at Montpelier and understanding the context of who James Madison as an individual was and the enslaved individuals at Montpelier. It's also important for understanding any community where they're at is looking at that history in the same way that using the curiosity you have about an older building, an artifact that you've found to really begin to appreciate not just the, the building for its architectural style or the artifact for its beauty or just you know, what is that artifact is, but try to understand the people that were, were, were that are behind those, those buildings, who built it, who lived in it, the artifact, who owned that, where did it come from, how did it get there? And that's where I think that, that that's what people are most surprised about when they come on our programs is it's not so much about the artifacts that you're finding, although everybody loves yeah. finding artifacts. Yeah. I mean, we yeah. do too. That's yeah. why we're it's archaeologists. Fine. That's right, exactly. But but what really what really gets that that makes the artifact come alive is the people that are behind it and their history, and then how it relates to the present. And that's what the 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 the, the present today. Um, and it so often is the um, what it, some of the most exciting parts of this is you know, involving descendants in this process, mm-hmm. you know, because that, you know, being, having, making a connection that makes their lives more tangible from what they didn't know about themselves, all of a sudden just open, opens up a whole, whole new set of doors to this area. Yeah, absolutely. It does. Matt, thank you so very much for taking time out of your day uh, to help us explore the legacy of race through archaeology and the the amazing opportunity that archaeology has um, as a teaching tool uh, for all of us. And so we truly appreciate your time today. Well, thank you for having me on the program, Annalise, and thank you for all the work you're doing at PASS. It's, a, it's very much an inspiration. Uh, well, you know, it's passion for all of us uh, here. So we, So we thank you as well. Thank you for joining us for Learning Unboxed, a conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. I want to thank my guests and encourage you all to be part of the conversation. Meet me on social media at Annalise Corbin and join me next time as we stand up, step back, and lean in to reimagine education.